X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. It's March 24th, 2020, and I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. Coming up on Portland's Daily Local Podcast, part two of our interview with Mayor Ted Wheeler, talking about Portland's pandemic response and his campaign for re-election. If I had to define where we are as a community today and what I see as mayor, there's a lot of things that are going right in our fantastic city, but there's a lot of things that are going wrong and they're national trends as well that are leaving people concerned, anxious, angry. But first, it's time for today's Quick Six Local Rundown. Your quarantine news. The social distancing has stepped up. In an effort to slow the spread of COVID-19, Governor Kate Brown issued a state order urging that, quote, to the maximum extent possible, individuals stay at home, end quote. Let's get into some of the details of the order. Individuals may go outside for non-contact recreation, but maintain at least six feet of social distancing. Non-essential social and recreational gatherings are prohibited if a distance of at least six feet cannot be maintained. It is not made clear what an essential recreational gathering is. And a long list of businesses are specifically barred from operating. Amusement parks, aquariums, arcades, art galleries to the extent they are open without appointment, barbershops and hair salons, bowling alleys, cosmetic stores, dance studios, esthetician practices, fraternal organization facilities, furniture stores, gyms and fitness studios, including climbing gyms, hookah bars, indoor and outdoor malls, that is, all portions of a retail complex containing stores and restaurants in a single area, indoor party places, including jumping gyms and laser tag, jewelry shops and boutiques, unless they provide goods exclusively through pickup or delivery service, medical spas, facial spas, day spas, non-medical massage therapy services, museums, nail and tanning salons, non-tribal card rooms, skating rinks, senior activity centers, ski resorts, social and private clubs, tattoo and piercing parlors, tennis clubs, theaters, yoga studios, and youth clubs. Bars, restaurants, and coffee shops can still operate and offer takeout. Grocery, medical, and pharmacy services are exempted. You can still go to Winco, your local food co-op. You can pick up your medicine. You can see your doctor. Businesses and nonprofits must offer work-at-home options wherever possible. State executive offices are closed to the public to the maximum extent possible. The legislative branch, judicial branch, federal governments, and tribal governments are not covered, but strongly encourage they shut down. The lawyer who wrote this, understood her separation of powers, and child care facilities must not exceed groups of 10. Good luck keeping those kids six feet apart. Individuals are directed to minimize non-essential travel. Folks can go outside for education, food, essential shopping, emergency services, and essential business and governmental services. The order doesn't clarify, as some states have done, what essential business and governmental services are. In any event, keep six feet apart. Violations of the order can be treated as a Class C misdemeanor, punishable by up to 30 days in jail and a $1,250 fine. Portland police officers will initially provide warnings to allow folks to voluntarily go home. The Oregon Health Authority has reported 30 new cases of COVID-19 since we did this yesterday. That brings Oregon's number of known cases to 191. New diagnosed cases were reported in the following counties, 14 in Washington County, that has the most cases, eight in Marion County, two cases each in Clackamas, Multnomah, and Polk counties, and one case each in Hood River and Lyd counties. Note that it's not hitting the city center the hardest. This bug doesn't care about any urban-rural divide. We all need to work together here. As of Monday afternoon, Washington State's Department of Health has announced 2,221 cases of the virus in the state and 110 related deaths. 
TriMet says it is classified as an essential service. It will keep running trains and buses to help workers get around the metro area. However, officials are directing riders to avoid the system unless it's absolutely necessary. You can take the bus for those essential trips, but try not to take the bus if you don't have to. TriMet indicated that later this week, it would likely announce cuts to the frequency and number of routes. Oregonians with studded tires on their cars or trucks won't have to remove them next week after all, state officials said on Monday. Transportation Department decided to give drivers until May 1st to remove their studded tires. The state cited limited business hours and social distance practices as the primary reason to grant the extension. Harder to go to the tire store when you're not supposed to leave your house to go to the tire store. Oregonians are typically allowed to use studded tires between November 1st and March 31st each year you got to remove those studded tires because the metal studs damage roads and highways all across the state. The Transportation Department announced last week that drivers will get reprieves from tickets and fines associated with expired vehicle registrations and driver's licenses. Good thing I got a new truck out there and it hasn't yet got its new registration. I got a temporary tag on it. So long as those deadlines came and went during Governor Kate Brown's state of emergency. Vancouver-based fast food chain Burgerville said on Monday that it would furlough 1,020 people in response to the coronavirus outbreak. The furloughs will impact 68% of Burgerville's workforce between its corporate office and restaurants across the Northwest. That marks the biggest cut to operations in the history of the company. That's 59 years. The company will continue to provide benefits to eligible furloughed employees. Those employees will be able to apply for unemployment benefits. The company did not say how long the furloughs would last. Licensed marijuana retailers can sell their pot curbside to promote social distancing and help stem the spread of coronavirus. The OLCC approved the temporary rule on Monday, allowing the curbside delivery. As far as I can tell, curbside delivery is the old school way of distributing marijuana. The rule permits retailers to take orders and deliver marijuana to a customer who is outside and within 150 feet of the licensed premises. And the sales can take place between 7 a.m. and 10 p.m. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. In a bit, you'll hear part two of our interview with Mayor Ted Wheeler. Right now, you'll hear from Emily Gilliland on the impact of COVID-19 right here in our community in ways that you can help. Thank you, Jefferson. Even though Oregon has been ordered to stay home and stay healthy, frontline businesses and nonprofit workers are still on high alert. Organizations are trying to make services available to as many affected communities as possible, stretching their limited time and resources as far as they can go. Food service and gig economy jobs have faced massive layoffs despite the state's allowance for takeout and delivery. Many workers are unsure when they will work again and are struggling to make ends meet. If you have the means to give or time to contribute during this stay-home order, numerous groups around the Portland area have received high demand without capacity to meet it. Today, we want to talk about some of the ways several thousand Portlanders have come together to support their communities. Just days ago, I spoke with the PDX, COVID-19 Mutual Aid Network, who are organizing to keep our friends and neighbors afloat. Let's learn more about their work and ways to support. So we are a grassroots organization just made up of a diverse group of community organizers 
who have been organizing our community for decades now, and we became activated because we saw a need in our community. Um, we needed to um, ensure that the most vulnerable communities in our in our um, neighborhoods that their needs are getting met, and that's our main priority. And so, how much money have you raised, or what sort of resources have you mm-hmm. raised up to this moment? Um, so right now we um, have over 2,000 volunteers. We have about 15 dispatchers that we've trained to take calls in um, and emails regarding people that are needing support and for people that want to volunteer. Um, we have we've been working with um, Congressman Blumenhauer's team, and we just released yesterday a comprehensive list of resources, kind of a one-stop shop for people that are needing things so they don't have to look far. We have been working with restaurants like Bernstein Bagels, um, who have had to close their doors for right now and getting donations from them. We're then um, using those donations to help people who do not have stoves and need prepped food right now. We have opened a um, drive-through distro food um box where volunteers can come into multiple areas, pick up food, and then we give them addresses to people who have requested needing that. And this is a um, a project that we're working on with Oregon Food Bank, and they are really showing up for the community right now. They are providing a lot of the food. They're providing volunteers and staff to ensure we can keep opening up more of these drive-through distribution sites for our community. We are working on getting a commercial kitchen right now. We're um, looking for people willing to donate space and people that have been working and are laid off right now um, in the service industry to start preparing food for larger groups of people. So we're able to distribute those as well. It's a big need right now. We have a huge portion of our community who don't have access to cooking or stoves right now. And you know, those are the populations that we are most concerned about and uplifting right now. While our friends at the PDX COVID-19 Mutual Aid Network have done a lot of the heavy lifting for other community members to get involved, here are some organizations to keep in mind during this crisis. The MRG Foundation has established a community response fund that will rapidly deploy resources to community-based organizations at the front lines of the COVID-19 outbreak in Oregon. The MRG Foundation Community Response Fund is designed to respond to the need among grassroots social justice organizations to shift their work and address the long-term effects of the outbreak. The Oregon Food Bank has received unprecedented demand on top of the over 80,000 people who already rely on their work. If you stocked up on food amid the panic that left the country looking for toilet paper, you may already have donation possibilities sitting in your home. In this time of social distancing, the Oregon Food Bank offers drop sites around the metro area ready to accept gifts of food. At a time when seniors are one of the most at-risk populations for COVID-19, the possibility of going hungry from not leaving the house looms. The organization Meals on Wheels People is also facing unprecedented demand to keep seniors fed, safe, and cared for as they try to deliver meals to thousands of at-risk seniors. 
Want to help out the thousands of restaurant workers who were laid off last week? Many of these workers have tipped wages, which means their unemployment dollars will not reflect their full income. Consider supporting the Restaurant Workers Community Foundation's COVID-19 Emergency Relief Fund to support individual workers and keep the small businesses they work for around. Many local restaurants are also offering online gift certificates or tip jars that you can contribute to. If you have some extra technology lying around, our friends at Free Geek are accepting computers. They're facing demand from students who have been sent home without access to technology. While online video conferencing and learning may seem like a given to some, for many young people in our city, it is a luxury. And finally, near and dear to X-Ray's heart are the gig economy workers and the music industry, many of whom we consider our family, with over 100 weekly volunteers involved as X-Ray DJs. The Musicians Emergency Healthcare Fund is supporting musicians and artists through an unprecedented time when they cannot play shows or gather. Often musicians do not have access to employer health care as self-employed workers. This crisis has only shown a spotlight on that issue. Interested in connecting with these organizations? Contact information is available in the show notes for this podcast. You can also dial 211 for resources and referrals. We recognize there are so many other organizations doing vital work in the city we call home. To all of you, thank you. And thank you to X-Ray listeners and members who have helped us amplify their voices and needs by supporting independent, purpose-driven media. Now, we continue to part two of Jefferson Smith's interview with Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler. Recorded on March 13th, as the COVID-19 impact and response started to become clearer. You can find this interview and more on xraypod.com, part of our Vision 2020 candidate interview series. I got to ask you about I-5 expansion. You sure. talked about one of the things that you you pride yourself or want to pride yourself on is uh, working with vulnerable populations, working with folks who've been left out of too much of the story of American prosperity or, in fact, been trampled upon by it. Uh, you also talked about how you're proud of your relationships both with business and labor. One of the ways mm-hmm. – if you want to get business and labor to come together, one way to do it is do a big build. Build a, an enormous highway system over the uh, over the Columbia River. Uh, expand I-5. Uh, meanwhile, increasing asthma rates in traditionally black communities in North Portland. Uh, how are you right now processing how we plan our transportation, knowing that, yeah, maybe we want some jobs, maybe we want some projects, but maybe we also want future-worthy projects that – buy down on or live up to our legacy of being a climate-friendly place, of being a place that's forward-thinking of transportation. And you, like many candidates, love to talk about climate change. And meanwhile, most of our big transportation projects, our biggest ones are highway expansions. Yeah. And, and to be clear, I don't just talk about climate change. We have, we have passed some legislation that really is cutting edge, the single-use plastics ordinance, which I brought last year, the 
clean air construction standard, which we've now implemented, the work we've done around uh, with Commissioner Udaley's leadership, the, the Rose Lanes, the Central City in Motion projects. There's a lot of good work that we are doing. The Rose Quarter expansion becomes a very thorny one. This is a major infrastructural investment at a time when people don't want to see any major infrastructural investments associated with the highway system. But here's how I look at it. From an engineering perspective, if you're on the west side and you want to go to the east side, you're going to drive east on I-26, then north on 405, then south on I-5, so you can finally get to I-84 east. And the whole time you're going to be weaving in and out of traffic. If 20 years from now, as I believe will be the case, all of the vehicles on that road are clean vehicles, zero emission vehicles as they are likely to be, we're still going to have a lot of engineering problems and bottlenecks, which will continue to cause problems. In addition, by moving forward on this project, we will be investing in improving infrastructure on bikes and walking. We have a chance to reconnect the historic African-American Albina neighborhood under the Albina vision or something similar to it, which is run by Rukiah Adams, uh, who is historically of that neighborhood. And so I, I'd like us to think a little more uh, innovatively and a little more big picture about what these projects actually are. If we decide we are not going to do this, and, and by the way, I've said, well, I want to do it, but with caveats, including a full EIS, looking at our equity goals, making sure it comports with environmental our environmental impact action. statement. Yeah. yeah, environmental impact statement. Uh, we have asked them to look at the air quality standards, and if it doesn't improve the air quality standards, we're out. And we also want to use congestion pricing. This is our opportunity to actually do, do that. You, you do congestion pricing prior to – would you push for congestion pricing prior to a commitment to expand the highway or, or replace a bridge? From, from a negotiations perspective, I don't want to give that, uh, that opportunity to the federal government. So uh, I, I, I will say that I am undecided on that particular point, but I think you can say pretty safely based on the resolution the city council passed that it's a must-have for us. But the larger point I want to make here is if we don't do this, then the question becomes, okay, what happens on the I-5 crossing around the Columbia River? Are we also off on that? Uh, even though we no, know these the bridge, things are linked, which right, I think we, is a, we know the bridge is is not stable. Are are you know, that will require some expansion of those lanes? Are we already making a decision we're not going to do that either? Well, this to me is the related that, question. This to me is the related question right. because if the if what we had was the uh, sort of transportation constabulary, right, uh, which includes the local governments, which includes the, our federal delegation, yes. which includes the uh, includes the building trades, which includes the uh, the business lobbyists, etc. If we were instead saying, hey, let's start with a seismic retrofit of that of the current bridge, which you can do for about the same price as it would take to tear it down or maybe only two, two X the price, $400 million for a seismic it's, it's retrofit. It's on wooden pilings, Jefferson. How are you going to do a seismic retrofit? It's not hard. It's not hard to add like this. The whole wooden pilings thing. This is interesting. It's worth investigating the wooden pilings thing. Wooden yeah, pi right. wood, is, wood works well underwater for like a long, long, long time. Well, it's, to it's seismically a time. For seismic retrofits, all you'd really need to do is add stuff, not tear it down. I mean, to tear it down, it's going to cost you, what, $200 million just to right. tear well, it down. I, and and but if you that could, proves to be right, and but for $300 million, dollars, it, I, I would be thrilled to hear that. I, I think that's that's hopefully, you know. But the no, but seriously, the question to ask, I see the expression on your face, but I think the question to ask the engineers is if you wanted, if what you were worried about mm -hmm. was safety and transportation for our highway system. 
how would you spend $4 billion? Mm -hmm. And I think if you spent it that way, you wouldn't just replace one bridge. I think you'd look at the fact that that is actually a stronger bridge than many of the other bridges that people are driving on all over the place. And we would try to spend $4 billion to seismically retrofit a bunch of them rather than just expand one to allow people to, I don't know, dodge Oregon income taxes and Oregon land use laws. Well, you know, there, there's a whole bunch of questions there. And obviously, there's a chance now to go back to the drawing board and look at it all. There's two primary safety and congestion issues. The primary safety issue, of course, is just flat out the age of the infrastructure. Um, and, and you're right. Maybe the, the engineers could figure out some alternative solution to the wooden pilings that currently exist under a bridge that's, that's in some parts made of recycled used parts to begin with. And then there's the question of the drawbridge. And that also has implications for a growing urban population on the West Coast. The, and I look forward to all of those conversations. I agree with you that we shouldn't be looking piece by piece. This is a regional transportation system. It's even a bi-state transportation system. And what's been lacking is a bi-state or a regional transportation vision. If you impact one piece of it, how does it impact other pieces? And where the last Columbia River Crossing project really fell apart was the inability to think broader than just the crossing of the river, but what are the implications all up and down the I-5 corridor? What are the implications over on I-205? And there was one point where it almost became comical where there was a separation of the traffic impact study from I-5 even over to I-205. Yeah. So we have a chance to completely revisit that. And it's worth it. I know you got to wrap in just a second. And we're talking to the mayor and candidate for re-election, Ted Wheeler. And yeah, my nudge would be to broaden the question because so much mm -hmm. of the question then yeah, was, I agree. should we get a new bridge or not? Well, sound sounds great. Should we have, should we spend some more money and get some jobs or not? Great. And trying to broaden a little bit of that. How would you, what do you think is an appropriate level of scrutiny on a mayor? We have had a string of one-term mayors. Some of that might be because the job is hard. Some of that might be because they had other things they wanted to do. Some of that might be because there were three straight mayors who didn't run for election. It's not, it doesn't demonstrate any trend. Just we flipped tails three times or flipped right, heads right, three right. times. Another could be that something about our current conversation, maybe in the era of social media, maybe in the era when the Oregonian used to have 400 uh, people in the newsroom at their peak, and now they have, I think, 40 in their newsroom. Uh, my law school classmate is now the editor, and it's a vastly different place, that, that now the stories that people have time for are those who are going to get the most mm. clicks. Mm. Uh, now we are, with, with growing wealth disparities, people are grumpier and angrier and more likely to feed the kind of story that will feed that kind of emotion. And I just wonder if you have any comment on sort of the current state of the media. Yeah, I, I do. Uh, the media is reflecting society. So, you know, when people attack the media the way that President Trump does, I think he's got it exactly wrong. The media is reflecting changing dynamics in the community. And if I had to define where we are as a community today and what I see as mayor, there's a lot of things that are going right in our fantastic city, but there's a lot of things that are going wrong and they're national trends as well that are leaving people concerned, anxious, angry. And the media is reflecting that and they themselves are changing at, at a light speed pace because of the fragmentation of the media, because of new technologies, because of 24-7 news and social media. So they're struggling to rebuild their own model 
of operation. At the same time, they're trying to reflect this growing anxiety, frustration, and anger on the part of the public. So to your core question, what is the appropriate level of scrutiny? Um, Everything should be on the table. I, I wish there was more balance than just if it bleeds, it leads. I wish there was also time to really reflect on the things that bring us together, that are positive, that that, that give us hope for the future. Um, but then that conflicts with some of the realities of the business model of staying staying together. You know, the, the work you do at X-Ray FM, I, I actually really enjoy coming in here because I grew up with three brothers. And you and I agree on a great many things, and we disagree on a great many things. This is what media should be. You have not once insulted me. um, But in this time, the more scrutiny you have, the more trust opportunity, trust building opportunities you have with the public. I like to be asked, frankly, because then it gets into my head. You know, people can get into my head, understand my thinking, why I'm doing the things I'm doing. And hopefully, even if they fundamentally disagree with my position on something, they at least understand that my motivations are sincere and they see how I am viewing issues and what information I'm reflecting back from the community. That's a good thing. 87% of Portland voters voted to limit campaign contributions to city races. 89% of county voters voted to do essentially the exact same thing. Uh, That is not being enforced right now by the city or the county or by courts. It is now before the Oregon Supreme Court. When it came to you, you had a couple choices, right? You could say, I'm going to stand with 87% of city voters, and even though a sheriff isn't going to arrest me if I don't, I'm going to limit my contributions in the way that you know came on that ballot initiative, or I'm going to do, or I'm going to do unlimited, and you decided to, to limit yourself to, I think it was $5,000 uh, contributions and then maybe $10,000 contributions from, other, from certain groups. Uh, Walk us through that decision. Why not just say, uh, why not just say, listen, I can win this race at $500 contributions or less. I, I've got enough name recognition. I got a big enough list. I can build enough support. Why, why did it take four and five, large four and five figure contributions to do it? Well, look, the last time I ran, I got exactly the same criticism. And the reality is I raised more small donor contributions than any of my opponents. Well, set aside the criticism. Just talk about the thought process. Well, the the thought process is is this. Number one, I think it misdiagnoses the problem. The problem in Mm -hmm. our community around representation isn't the lack of access to campaign resources. In my opinion, it's the fact that you have to run citywide. It creates a much higher threshold for people of color and women to be able to run for office. We've only had eight women serve on the city council in in the entire history of this city, and three of them serve with me today. And in large measure, one can look at or talk to experts about the reasons for that. And a big part of it is the fact that we don't have district representation at the city level. With regard to actual campaign finance limits, I do support them. And I put limits in that are consistent with the federal limits. I didn't have to do that. I didn't do it last time, but I chose to do it this time. We're not flooding the market with money. You can't win any race in Oregon, certainly not in Portland, Oregon, by you know, dollars alone. Jim Francisconi learned that lesson. It's about getting out there, having field operations, being able to communicate effectively with people. And the money I'm raising is going towards field ops and the ability to get out there and communicate with people and let people know what we're doing, why we're doing it, and what we do if, if, if I get reelected. Last question to you. Your friend and colleague Nick Fish just passed. Hmm. One of the things that he said was our city was lacking a central narrative. We were lacking a shared understanding of ourselves. 
What do you think the central narrative of Portland is? How do we build or rebuild a shared story of ourselves? I, I loved Nick dearly. Um, we were friends long before we were colleagues. And um, his passage is, is definitely noted on the city council. On this issue, he and I had many conversations, and we didn't always agree. When you say shared narrative, I guess the shared narrative for Portland is it's a place where people feel that they can come from any part of the country or any part of the world and feel like they belong here. This is a city that despite the fact we're growing, we're becoming more diverse, we're becoming more complex in terms of the issues we're, we're confronting. The reality is we're small townish in that we still have each other's back. We care about each other. We are fighting collectively against the federal government's efforts to, to intimidate immigrants and women and people of color. People know that they can come here and be part of our community, engage. This is a community that, that values uh, creativity, the arts, small scale. You know, we, we don't have any big Fortune 500 companies like Seattle does. We appreciate small scale and makerspace and creative and entrepreneurial efforts and ventures. We'd rather have salt and straw and voodoo donuts than Amazon. That tells you something about the collective culture of this community. But we also are concerned about the same types of big city issues other people are, homelessness, ensuring that we close the, the wage, the income, and the wealth gap, uh, making sure that we have shared economic prosperity for people, protecting our environment and being aggressive on addressing our climate action goals. People who come here love the wilderness. They love the outdoors. They love the livability of this city. And those things, even though we're all really different people and we disagree a lot, I mean, we're like a family. We disagree a lot and we're very self-critical of, of, of our city. But I think at the end of the day, we know we've got a jewel here. We've got a jewel. And it's not just the sense of place or the built environment. It's the people and those shared values that I described that bring us together. So where, where I gently disagree with... Uh, my beloved former colleague, is that I think that that narrative is there and it's running under the surface and it's what holds us together, but it's not like an overt 10-point business plan. It's something much more ethereal and fragile. And part of the responsibility I feel as the mayor of the city is making sure that as we grow, as we become a global city, as people come here from all regions, we don't lose the things that we love so much about this city. What should I have asked you that I didn't? Oh, my goodness. The, the uh, do my job for me question. <laughs> um, you know, there, there is one thing. Just or give you a chance to say anything question. you want. Shifting to campaign mode. Um, you know, I, I really do want to have a, dyni a dynamic back and forth with the people in this community. And we've got this thing on our campaign website called Q&A with the community. We're having a lot of fun with it. Uh, if people want to ask me questions, including really hard, inappropriate questions, please send them to campaign at tedwheeler.com. We answer them publicly. We put them on the record. We send them out on our campaign literature. Uh, it would be fun to hear from some people, including those who are jumping up and down, hopping mad right now. Send me your questions, and I look forward to answering them. I hope we have a chance to do this again. Thank you. Likewise, Jefferson. I appreciate it. All right. Mayor Ted Wheeler, thanks for sitting in the seat. Thanks for sharing your time. This is your daily local news podcast, The Local, your hometown in 30 minutes. We'll be back tomorrow with more news from Portland and beyond.
Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Really hope that you will share it. We're getting pretty proud of it. There's a wonderful crew working really hard to make it. I now recognize why there is not a daily local news podcast in Portland, because it does take a bunch of work. You can help make sure that work is worth it by sharing it with your friends, by rating and reviewing, and helping to make sure that we have a morning paper without a morning paper. Thanks so much for listening to The Local. Please do spread the word. If we can build a big enough community, we can have a strong and sustainable daily local news podcast for our hometown. We can't do it without you.